Welcome to Twin Peaks Cinema. This month we're covering Back to the Future Part 2, kicking off a three-month series called Disordered Stories. These will vary pretty wildly from on the lighter side to the much darker side. This is one of the lighter ones, even though it's probably the darkest of the Back to the Future trilogy, where we're dealing with a sci-fi time travel comedy. But seeing how it connects to actually some of the deeper, darker moments in the new Twin Peaks, even though I do draw some connections to the broader Twin Peaks, this probably would not be a, a comparison I would make before season three. But after season three, there's just a real obvious connection there between these works which we'll discuss in terms of characters not just going back in time but going back to earlier parts of this very work and watching it as, as we'll discuss i don't want to get ahead of myself here okay uh before we get to that though uh, here's what i've been up to in my other podcast just briefly on uh, twin peaks conversations split up over youtube for the public and patreon for the uh, longer back conversation where we continue for five dollar a month tier uh, this month, I had a conversation, uh, my second one in this series, or in this uh, podcast, with John Thorne, who just came out with the book Ominous Whoosh, A Wandering Mind Returns to Twin Peaks, all about season three. I also published my Lost in the Movies uh, monthly podcast episode on The Shanghai Gesture, a Joseph von Sternberg film in uh, set in China in the early 20th century. And then I also, uh, for Patreon, put out the first part of my uh, September podcast. The rest has been delayed to about mid-October because I have a lot of uh, films I want to watch and just write about, um, discuss in like a capsule form. But uh, in this case, I was this was uh, building off the theme of the previous month and concluding the 80s. So I covered three films in focus, longer reviews of these movies, uh, t- discussing them on the podcast, Red Dawn, Do the Right Thing, and Hail Mary. I also had capsules, so shorter uh, discussions on Stranger Things, Top Gun Maverick, The Goonies, Gremlins, Midnight Runs, and Scarface, plus some feedback, media, and work updates, uh, including a review or a capsule, uh, just a quick discussion of the film on Kanto, and uh, more stuff in there as well you can check out. And part two, like I said, will be coming later in October. So that's uh, what's up right now, and uh, there'll be more in the coming months. I will return to Lost in Twin Peaks, or the plan is anyways to return to it in, in uh, November and finish up season three, my episode-by-episode episode Twin Peaks podcast. Uh, but uh, I need to get some work done on that first. So we'll see where that all is the next time we check in. But for now, let's switch to Back to the Future Part 2 and Twin Peaks. Do you remember the future? Where? Back to the future. Are we back? We're back. What do you mean we're in the future? October 21st, 2015. Marty, we're going to be able to see our wedding. Wow. The future. I got to check this out, Doc. Look what happened to your son. Wimp. Don't talk to anyone. You've been looking. Don't touch anything. I need to borrow your hoverboard. And try not to look at anything. 
I didn't invent the time machine to win at gambling. I can't lose. I invented the time machine to travel through time. Hey, Doc, I'm all for that. What's wrong with making a few bucks on the side? Now, the time continuum has been disrupted, creating an alternate 1985. There have been a few changes. It's like we're in hell or something. No, it's Hill Valley, although I can't imagine hell being much worse. But they'll all be back. Eat less, slackers! Biff? Hello? Hey. Hello, anybody home? Why they can't be you? You're so big. Michael J. Fox. Christopher Lloyd. Michael J. Fox. More like a couple of teenagers, you know? And Michael J. Fox. Mom, is that you? Steven Spielberg presents a Robert Zemeckis film, Back to the Future, Part 2. Coming November 22nd to theaters everywhere. In some ways, Back to the Future, uh, the whole franchise, there's an obvious connection to Twin Peaks, and in some ways, they couldn't seem further apart. I think the similarities are particularly evident with the first film, which takes place in 1955, it's about a young man or a teenager from 1985 who goes back 30 years and has to bring his parents together. Now, the way he goes back is there's a time machine built into a DeLorean that's uh, designed by Doc Brown, a character played by Christopher Lloyd. And Marty McFly, played by Michael J. Fox, is kind of his pal. They never really explain why this you know, popular high school kid is hanging out with the eccentric town mad scientist, but there it is. And uh, he he takes this, he hops in the DeLorean, there's sort of a terrorist situation where, quote unquote, the Libyans, very 80s move there, are, uh, are angry because Doc stole some plutonium from them to build his time machine. So they kind of gun him down in the parking lot of this mall and Marty has to flee. And as the car picks up speed, boom, it goes back in time. And the mall is now a tree farm that he's driving through. And so he ends up wandering back into the town square of the town that, uh, you know, it's implied he's grown up in his whole life, Hill Valley, California. They're playing Mr. Sandman. There's a Ronald Reagan movie at the theater that in uh, later days is a, is a porno theater. And uh, he's just kind of stunned by this this realization he has gone back 30 years. Runs into his mother, runs into his father. And this isn't really the film we're discussing, although in a way it kind of is, which we'll get to. But I'll make it, I'll make it brief. He has to bring his parents together because, uh, you know, he, his, he accidentally intervenes in a way that gets him to meet his mother in his father's place. She gets a crush on him, which he's uncomfortable with for numerous reasons, and tries to uh, get his father and his mother together to kiss at the dance so they will become a couple and he'll eventually be born down the line so that's the first film brilliant conceit very charming and while it has a time travel sci-fi hook really the heart of it is in this both the gap between the two eras and the kind of commonality of the teenage experience across these years and, and Marty saying, oh my God, my parents really were my age, and this is what they were like. Just a wonderful idea, brilliantly executed. So, of course, huge hit. They want to make a sequel, and that's the film I really want to discuss in relation to Twin Peaks. So I said, again, that that first film, maybe the connection is a little more obvious in a way to Twin Peaks, and I think it's that small-town vibe, 
that focus on these kind of wholesome yet little bit curious and edgy teenagers and the kind of 50s milieu. Twin Peaks doesn't take place in the 50s, but it has a very 50s sensibility. And everything I've just mentioned is part of Twin Peaks, but it's even more part of Blue Velvet, which came out a year after Back to the Future. And they even deal with some of these weird Freudian uh, dynamics in very different ways, I guess you could say. Uh, in Blue Velvet, much, you know, goes much further, whereas Back to the Future keeps it all kind of fun and charming. You have to actually think for a second, like, wait, this is a movie about like a mother who is like hitting on her son. <laughs> like, what the hell? So, you know, they, they kind of come at it from very different angles, but uh, similar kind of themes. But Back to the Future Part 2, until Season 3, there was really little to no connection between this and Twin Peaks. Although I will turn up some commonalities that I think are kind of fun. But after Season 3 of Twin Peaks, the connect, well, particularly Part 17, 17 and 18, but 17 in particular of uh, Season 3, the connection just became really transparently obvious to the point where a lot of people brought it up and usually in an amused way because again these are totally very different works particularly by the time you get to the end of season three very avant-garde not playing by any clearly discernible rules of time travel and space time and all of this uh it's it, it to the extent it is it's very hidden lynch and frost don't make anything explicit it was back to the future part two goes out of its way to make the time travel conceits conceits uh you know highly specific so what happens in this sequel is uh, it picks up exactly where the first film left off doc brown shows up and now a flying delorean says he's gone to the future and he needs marty to intervene in his own family's future to make sure his son doesn't screw up and end up in prison so it takes them into a version of 2015 that they envisioned in 1989 when the film was made. Flying cars, hoverboards, and everybody wearing super late 80s, early 90s fashion that I guess they thought would only be heightened in 2015. And there's all these little gags when they're there walking through this this futuristic hill valley where, for example, the Cubs win the World Series, which really did happen a year after that in 2016. So some of this stuff came true, um, very much more so in a part that we'll get to in a minute. But in terms of the future stuff, they have little gags and like the newspaper, like there's a caps a caption on the side that says, president says she's tired of reporters asking the same questions. So obviously the idea there would be a female president that year, which there almost was a year later. And then also there's like a, they watch multiple channels on the TV so it's funny, nobody really thinks of the internet, which is what really revolutionized the world in between then and now. But uh, you do have like multiple channels being watched at the same time, but there's a sort of a streaming quality that's very glitchy. So it's like they couldn't quite envision a more more or less seamless technology, at, you know, uh, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Transmission that you would find now. And then there's other captions which are sort of poignant in that newer headlines in that newspaper. For example, Washington prepares for Queen Diana's visit. Who could have imagined that Queen Elizabeth would still be alive and reigning in 2015 and Princess Diana would be dead, let alone out of the royal family, even if she hadn't been. There's also an ad at a travel agency that says Surf Vietnam. So this idea of like normalized relations over time, which pretty much has happened. And that corresponds nicely with a sign at the travel agency in the 50s 
that you can see when they're in that uh, era, which says, uh, go to Cuba for 10 days, 10 days in Cuba, because it was four years before Castro's revolution. So, you know, you have this kind of idea of uh, bracketing the Cold War with more normalized relations between these countries, which, again, you know, some cases happen and some cases not so much. Also, amusingly, there's a little kid in a cafe in the town, which is like 80s themed, where they have like Ronald Reagan and Michael Jackson on these weird glitchy computer animation screens trying to take people's orders. But they have a kid trying to play an arcade game, and he's played by Elijah Wood, an eight or nine year old Elijah Wood in the late 80s. And I just thought this was funny because now on YouTube, I'm bombarded with these ads of Elijah Wood playing a video game at 40. And uh, so that kind of amused me to watch this. I think the same day I'd just been hearing that ad for like the 13th time. So a lot of material is kind of repeated in this sequence from the 50s film, but like restaged in a, now a, a 60 year later context, even at the same location sometimes, like the same diner slash cafe, the same town square. There's a chase scene which is on hoverboards this time, and uh, with Biff, who is the villain in the first film, uh, this kind of town bully who uh, grows up to become uh, Marty's dad's boss. And in the future, it's his son who's tormenting Marty's son. So this is all very convoluted. We don't need to get too much into the family relations, all of this. Although it's worth pointing out, Michael J. Fox plays himself at in his 40s. His son and his daughter as well. So he plays the whole family, basically. They had to experiment with some new technology from Industrial Lights and Magic for this. This character now who's tormenting his son is Biff's grandson. Makes you wonder who Biff's son, or I suppose it could be his daughter, um, is. And of course, he too, Biff and Griff, the you know the grandson, are played by the same actor uh, in this film, who... Um, having trouble remembering what his uh, name is. Thomas Wilson, I think, is his name. And he's great in this movie, which we'll get to. So this is really just the first part of the movie, kind of taking back to the future and restaging it in the future, where it starts to get a little more interesting even uh, is when they go back to 1985, thinking they've resolved the situation in the future, and they find the whole what they thought of as the present has completely changed. Now, the reason for this is that the this is where it's you know starts to get complicated. The old Biff in the future has uh, he he kind of overhears this conversation, realizes the DeLorean is a time machine, and Marty was going to take a sports almanac book back with him so that he could lay bets on you know various uh, games and results and win some money because he would know exactly who's going to win. And so the old Biff in his 70s in 2015 hops in the DeLorean when no one's looking, rides it back and gives it to himself in 1955 as a teenager and creates this alternate 1985 in which Biff is basically Donald Trump. So they have the character looking pretty similar. He has a huge gaudy tower in the middle of Hill Valley 27 stories high with his face emblazoned on it and his name all over the place. And there's a video saying how 
he's one of the richest men in America and all this stuff. So, you know, it, in some ways, the 1985 portion of this film bears more resemblance to uh, 21st century America than their 2015 vision does. So now Marty has a whole new problem. Biff has murdered his father, married his mothers, wants to murder him. So he and Doc Brown have to now go back to 1955, where they were in the first film, and make sure that they that Biff doesn't keep that almanac. So now you have this brilliant sequence. It's just such a wonderfully, uh, gloriously outrageous conceit to have them go back basically into the first movie and have the same characters running around. So you have uh, Marty McFly, who already doesn't belong in 1955, there doing all the stuff he did in the first movie while this other Marty McFly who also is coming from a different time period racing around behind him to try to make sure that nothing happens to him while also trying to get the almanac so that's all crazy it's it's hard to kind of summarize if you've seen the film and I think most people listening to this have probably seen it you know what I'm talking about but there's all kinds of interesting Uh, It's basically three films in one, I would say. And that middle section where Biff has taken over the town, in addition to being a a sort of prediction of the the Trump reign, it also is obviously a riff on It's a Wonderful Life, where you have the sequence where the James Stewart character sees a version of the town in which he never lived, and the villainous Mr. Potter, this wealthy bully of the town has just taken it over completely and it's all sleazy it's crime infested lots of vice uh his own name now the the town changed to his name and all of that stuff it's it's just very clearly reflected in this like they were having fun taking that idea and applying it to the back to the future universe but i think my favorite part of the film is probably at the end just because it's so wonderfully choreographed to watch these characters interacting with the previous film. And that also brings us to, finally, to Twin Peaks and the connections with that show. And as I think I said, they're basically all to season three. So in part 17 of Twin Peaks The Return, you have Cooper going back to 1989, the year that uh, Back to the Future Part Two came out, incidentally, which is when Laura Palmer was killed. And he goes, and to demonstrate this, they have footage from the 1992 film Firewalk with Twin Peaks Firewalk with me with Cheryl Lee 25 years younger playing Laura Palmer and Cooper Kyle McLaughlin 25 years later watching her scenes with James so they have her talking to him and she kind of glances off screen and off, off screen and screams at one point in the original movie and you don't know at what it's just this kind of random gesture very Lynchian where she's kind of paranoid and thinking she sees things in the woods and they intercut this shot with Cooper reacting like that's what she's screaming at, which is just brilliant. Also opens up some interesting questions about what's happening here with Cooper. Is he as in back to the future going back and changing things to create an alternate reality? Or is it more like say the Terminator where you have time travel that has always happened. So the character goes back in time and ends up fathering the person who sent him back in time to father him. So it's like, you know, there is no alternate universe in that version of time travel. So the fact that Laura screams at Cooper, I'm getting off on a little bit of a tangent here, but that makes me think that Cooper was always there 
in the original film. We just didn't see him. And that therefore what happens in the original film still happens. Um, that that vision of her disappearing, you know, because once Cooper sees her in the woods and takes her hand and leads her away from meeting the people who she's going to be uh, murdered, you know, because of, uh, we flash into footage from the pilot episode and see uh, Pete and Josie and these people we saw in that original episode, except when Pete goes outside, they've they've removed Laura's body from the beach. And they even show a shot before that of her body flicking in and out and, and disappearing. And then, of course, the shot of him fishing. So he actually gets to go fishing, unlike in the pilot. Whole other direction. So this is like Twin Peaks' version of the alternate 1985 that we see in Back to the Future. And, of course, this opens up all sorts of questions. Does this mean that both universes exist, that you can travel between them, or is there really only one timeline which has been totally altered? Uh, Back Future itself kind of opens up these questions because if you think about it, the fact that they've gone back to this alternate 1985 and then they go back to 1955, it's like if, if you try to follow the line, the thread of this time travel, I'm laughing talking about this because I've tried to explain this movie to my dad and he gets visibly agitated. I guess he never watched. I thought he watched it. I know he's seen the original, but uh, I, I tried to explain how time travel works in this film. And he got like really like almost like viscerally upset. Like, don't don't talk about this to me. Like it just I guess some it doesn't bother me, but some people are like really bothered by the concept of time travel. And my aunt is, too. So it must be a family thing. But anyways, so that's the big connection here is this scene where Cooper goes back, he changes the past, and it ends up seemingly somehow changing the present. You also get the scene at the end of part 18 where he's now gone to Odessa. He's found someone who looks like Laura but doesn't reply to her name but goes with him. They travel all the way to Twin Peaks. They go to her house. They drive around. Everything is a little darker, a little more, you know, um, uh, it doesn't have that vibrant glow of Twin Peaks. The diner's lights are off as they drive past. It doesn't have the sign on it that it had in the other part of the show. So here again is a, is where we kind of see that parallel with this idea of like an alternate 1985 type thing where they're in the same place, but it's somehow different. And they go to the house and Laura's mother doesn't live there. He's totally baffled. And, uh, you know, the film ends with this sense of like, where in time are they? <laughs> we don't even know. If there's more Twin Peaks, I would love to see it go in that direction of exploring that question in, you know, a very Lynchian fashion where it doesn't get quite as literal as Back to the Future Part Two. But this whole idea of restaging sequences, starting where we left off, and then even recasting, this is something we see maybe more in the film Firewalk With Me where the character of Donna is played by a different actress uh, in Back to the Future Part Two, you know, we have uh, the actors who played Marty's girlfriend not coming back, so they reshoot all the sequences with this with this other actress with Elizabeth Shue. Um, so there's and everyone just acts like, yeah, of course, this is the person who was there all along. What are you talking about? So it's kind of a funny similar dynamic there. Actors dressed up to kind of replicate their former roles. So you know, you have Cheryl Lee twenty five years later wearing her costume as Laura and Firewalk with Me. They even made her up to look younger. Uh, in this film, Back to the Future Part Two, they're making up the characters to look older. But all this kind of playing with time and having the actors play multiple versions of themselves. And also 
this is important, I think, retconning the meaning and purpose of what we originally saw. So at the end of Back to the Future, supposedly they say, I find it a little hard to believe that they didn't think a sequel would be in the offing, but they say, oh, no, it was just a one-off. That was just a gag ending, like, ha-ha, now they're going off to the future. Imagine what that'll be like. And then, of course, it was very popular. They made the sequel, and they actually add some little subtle details where uh, Doc Brown kind of pauses when Marty says, well, how am I doing? Am I rich? Am I successful? And he's kind of like, oh, should I tell him? That was something they didn't have in the original because it wasn't going to play out like that. But when they decided that, you know, his family would be dysfunctional in the future and they came up with the whole plot for it, at that point, they kind of change it. And that's similar to a lot of the stuff that goes on, again, really particularly part 17 and 18 of season three, where suddenly it's all about this this Judy Jowaday spiritual force that they've been looking for all along and kind of again retconning it to to make it mean this new thing and also at the in this early scene uh where the delorean takes off in the sky they have biff running out into the street to say something and he sees the delorean disappearing and stares at it in 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 total shock and uh, this is also kind of reminiscent of how they insert Cooper into Firewalk with me, this character who wasn't there, and and weave him into it, where he's he's reacting to things that uh, he's seeing there, and they're reacting to 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 him being there, and everything like that. The most interesting kind of rich connection, uh, and narratively in this film to Twin Peaks, is that at the end of it. At the end of both uh, Part 17, specifically, where Lara is walking off with Cooper in the woods, Sarah Palmer attacks her portrait, and then we see her, well, we she disappears and we hear her scream, and Cooper looks around like, where is she gone? There's an almost identical ending. The way it leads into the Back to the Future Part 3, which is like an old Western, old frontier town story, where they go back to Hill Valley in 1885, and uh, Doc you know, Marty has to rescue Doc. Uh, it it even kind of parallels that. So at the end of Back to the Future Part Two, uh, Doc is up in the sky with the the DeLorean, trying to land, and a lightning strike hits the DeLorean and zaps it seemingly out of existence. But what it actually does is jolt it uh, seventy years into the past, and then the that is like the cliffhanger of this film because somebody shows up with a letter. I've been I was told to meet you here at this moment in 19 this by the way is an area where the whole idea of if you go back and change the past you there's like an alternate present created so how would this guy in the same timeline be able to show up and give Marty this letter so in this moment they're kind of cheating a little anyways I'm get, I'm getting off subject at the end of this film now Marty has to go find the doc brown in 1955 and get him to uh you know to 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 realize that uh well <laughs> it's it's too hard to explain in this film so they have to make they have to make the sequel and have one more film where he convinces this version that uh, the future version of him is now in the past and all of that and they they have fun with that idea so basically what's happening at the end of part 17 and at the end of Back to the Future part 2 is you have a character ripped away at a climactic moment, precipitating a journey into another realm, specifically a western locale, Odessa, Texas, or the old frontier town of Hill Valley, 
to retrieve that other character, even though that other character doesn't really seem to want to leave or share their desire to, to kind of get out of there. So, well, I guess Carrie Page does want to get out of there, but she doesn't know who this Laura is, what Twin Peaks is, and uh, the the journey doesn't quite go as expected. I just found that totally fascinating that these two cliffhanger works before the finale of the saga have this similar ending to them. So that's really fun. Now, here's a bunch of just sort of random uh, connections between the film that I, that popped up that I, that I thought were interesting. Uh, you have a doc Brown popping in from the ether, like Philip Jeffries and dressed kind of eccentrically. Although I think in a way he's dressed more like Dr. Jacoby perhaps. And later in the film, when he's explaining the time travel, he's got a chalkboard and he's showing Marty, the different timelines reminds me quite a bit of the Jeffries tea kettle, in the motel talking to uh, Cooper and telling him that he's going to send him back to the, you know, there's an official version and uh, the, you know, it's slippery in here and all of that stuff. One thing that amused me is there's a scene where doc Brown, Christopher Lloyd is uh, says, says to Marty, well, I had to wear this mask so that I wouldn't shock you by my age, but I've actually been rejuvenated with this future technology. So I look younger and he pulls off the wrinkled old face of the 70 year old man in the eighties and uh, looks more like the character's age in the fifties. And of course that's because Christopher Lloyd himself was really in his forties and uh, you know, they just, they, they had to find a way to get him so he wouldn't have to wear makeup through this whole film. And that reminded me, this is a very goofy connection, but it reminded me of Maddie in season two of Twin Peaks, where Lynch is directing her for the first time and he has her take off her glasses that she's worn through the whole series and break them. And I'm like 99% sure that was just because he found them annoying and he he didn't want Cheryl Lee to wear them. So in both cases, you have the actors doing these things within the plot just to get them to wear, you know, get, get them to a more comfortable looking place that the director wanted them. So that's kind of a frivolous connection, but it amused me when I thought of it. You have Marty wandering around the Hill Valley of the future, a bit like Dougie in Las Vegas, just this character kind of lost in time and space uh, out of his league there. And also, of course, you have Billy Zane as a uh, henchman to Biff. And he's even wearing a cowboy hat. So big John Justice Wheeler lines there. I don't know why he has a Southern accent. Uh, which he does, that doesn't, I mean, they're in California, but uh, I guess they thought he just had to have that twang. Another one of Biff's henchmen has red and blue glasses, like red and blue lenses exactly like Dr. Jacoby. And this is a character who in the 50 scenes is wearing 3D glasses. So that's why it's like he had a more expensive set of them made now that his, uh, now that the bully he hangs out with is uh, a, billi- a millionaire or a billionaire or whatever. The Enchantment Under the Sea dance that we see in the 1950s sequence at the high school definitely has like a Miss Twin Peaks vibe with the streamers hanging down the kind of cheesy stage decorations, everybody looking up at the stage in the auditorium. Again, that kind of 50s vibe that Twin Peaks always likes to play with. It's funny, I was going to say that Mary Steenburgen, who's in Back to the Future Part 3, is the only actor who Lynch in the Back to the Future films, who Lynch has directed. But of course, that's not true. Crispin Glover, who is a star of the first movie, playing Michael J. Fox's dad, 
is in Wild at Heart and also Lynch's hotel room. A very eccentric actor who uh, I'll link his Letterman um, appearances below. They were about a year or two after uh, Back to the Future came out uh, in connection to River's Edge, another film I've discussed in relation to Twin Peaks. And every time I bring up Crispin Glover, I have to link those videos because they're just so outrageous. The, the persona he adopts for that uh, talk show. Worth watching below. We have a clock that gets stopped in both Twin Peaks and Back to the Future. There's an obsession, obviously, with electricity and its transformative, transportational uh, powers. And there's even a performance by ZZ Top in both sagas, although ZZ Top doesn't appear till Back to the Future Part 3, but we do see a preview of that at the end of this film. So that's there, too. Michael J. Fox and Kyle McLaughlin playing different versions of the character, like multiple versions. I mean, you have Michael J. Fox as Marty in 85, going back to 55, then going back again to 55 around his former self, playing his uh, himself in his 40s, playing his teenage son, playing his teenage daughter. And then in the next film, he'll also play one of his ancestors. So he gets to kind of play all these riffs or variations on the same character, some of whom literally are the same character at different times, and uh, some of whom are um, like uh, relatives or, or variations on that character in one way or another. Uh, and and uh, the the actor who plays Biff as well, Thomas Wilson, gets to do that. And he really steals this show. I think he has the most fun in this movie, playing like a teenage version of himself, arguing with an old version of himself, and uh, just re- really going and chewing the scenery. Uh, I mean, this is his film, really, which is great. Uh, I enjoy watching him act in this. But yeah, so those... That you have all of these actors getting to play multiple versions, just as Kyle McLaughlin gets to play Dougie, Dougie Coop, Mr. C, the Cooper in the Lodge who comes out, the Richard Cooper character at the end, the other Dougie. I mean, there's at least like five or six versions of Cooper in this. There's also a very Mulholland Drive-esque sense of people being kind of different people in these alternate realities. Like you have a version of Marty that's this cool kid. You have a version of Marty that's kind of a loser in middle age. You have the dopey son uh, and all of this. You have the two, like I said, the two versions of Biff arguing with themselves. And uh, this again is something I think you see in sort of late Lynch films, this transformation of characters and kind of bending of, characters encountering each other in some way or another you know this is a film where you have different versions of them in time grappling with one another almost as doppelgangers and something i want to end on is the big difference i think between hill valley and twin peaks is they're presented visually on screen you have i think in twin peaks very discrete units these different locations, both of them have kind of a Disneyland feel of heightened small town iconography. Here's the diner set, here's the this set. But with Twin Peaks, you don't totally have a sense of how all this stuff relates. Whereas Robert Zemeckis in Back to the Future, the director of Back to the Future, I probably should have mentioned by now since I'm going to be doing some archive reading on his work, but he's so intent on letting you know how all the different parts relate, especially when you enter into the town square. Each of these films 
has a shot where he enters the the town and you have this huge overhead camera movement showing everything, the clock building, the movie theater, the gas station, and you're seeing how it ages through different times. And as anybody knows, listening to this podcast, I'm obsessed with generations and different eras and how things kind of rhyme or correspond. So these movies are just a godsend to me in that sense. And I even created a video essay uh, delving into that, which I'll discuss in a moment. Shark still looks fake. If you believe in progress, re-elect Mayor Red Thomas. Progress is his middle name. My grandpa was mayor of Hill Valley. Mayor Goldie Wilson. Progress is his middle Bigger name. Bigger civic improvements and lower taxes. Hey, kid. What? Well, what's with the life preserver? What'll it be, stranger? Hey, that clip you just heard was from Welcome to Hill Valley, my non-narrated video essay juxtaposing all the different versions of Hill Valley synced up to show different parts of the town square, like the gas station or the movie theater, side by side, so you can just see simultaneously how that town evolves over time. So this, you know, was just made for my sensibility, this type of film, and I loved picking it apart this way. This video actually came out on October 21st, 2015, the day that Marty supposedly goes into the future, uh, which for that one moment was the present and now is the past. Here's what I wrote at that time. Depending when Marty visits Hill Valley, it might be a frontier town, an idyllic 1950s neighborhood, a sleek 21st century metropolis, or a dystopian alternate universe hellhole. This video allows Hill Valley to inhabit all those modes at once, with four screens simultaneously depicting past, distant, recent, present, and future. Or is that the future? The day that Marty visited in Back to the Future Part 2 was October 21st, 2015, so from today's standpoint, we can compare not just the three or four time periods on display, but the fiction on screen with the fact off screen. Welcome to Hill Valley explores the ways that fashion, architecture, and behavior have changed, as well as the ways they have stayed the same, as Biff Tannen says, there's something very familiar about all of this. What year is this? For this particular podcast, I have some bonus material to share. First, some listener feedback that I received after this episode. Uh, usually the feedback is sort of reinforcing a point or saying what they like about this movie. This is an interesting one in that it's actually a pan of the film. They did not like Back to the Future Part 2, so I'll let the listener speak for herself. For uh, episode 72, where I covered Back to the Future Part 2 is Twin Peaks Cinema, Anna Lee responded, This is hilarious. I absolutely dislike Back to the Future Part 2. I usually work late with the TV on in the background, and the Back to the Future trilogy seems to always be on. The only part of 2 that I honestly enjoy is the last 30 minutes or so at the end, when the man comes driving up to Marty saying how he's been holding on to a letter for 70 question mark, years, and that he had to be at that exact location. What always turns me off, like how you described how much your dad and aunt both get viscerally upset when talking about time travel, is the whole cartoonish way the actors act in the future. It's really jarring, especially that first fight scene in the diner. Their voices and motions are exaggerated like an early Terry Gilliam film. And it just gets cringy with the weird prosthetics and cross-dressing later on. Maybe that's why Part 3 is so successful, because the Western feels like a reset back to the realistic, authentic, dusty scenes with great action and quick-witted dialogue. My favorite scene in Part 3 
is when both Marty and Doc switch their iconic catchphrases, with Marty exclaiming, Great Scott! and Doc replying, This is heavy. I said, Ha, not sure I thought about that. Part 3 is the only one I haven't yet rewatched recently. Probably been at least a decade. Also, about, uh, well, about six months or so uh, after I released this Back to the Future Part 2 episode for patrons, I recorded a capsule uh, also for patrons on the first Back to the Future film and uh, talked about the interest of the 50s and the silent generation. So I'll share that here, just a couple minutes. I often do film capsules on my Patreon podcast that can run anywhere from, I don't know, a minute to like eight minutes, where it's not like a full review, it's just riffing on a theme or an idea. So uh, I thought this would be interesting to share here as an addendum or a appendix or an epilogue, whatever you want. Uh, of course, this is the first film, but I guess there's something fitting to uh, using the first film as an epilogue to the second in a series all about time travel and reversing back on yourself in chronology. I did decide to watch Back to the Future because I'd watched Back to the Future Part 2 months earlier and was listening to podcasts about the, the, the whole trilogy and had this kind of hunger to go back and visit. And that is such a fun film to watch. Um, broken record here, just talking about how one era envisions another because the 50s now is 65 years in the past. There's a lot of distance there. Most people you interact with at the daily basis aren't going to remember it, except maybe like people, you know, if, if you are with some, like my parents, you know, my father would remember it because he was like... Uh, 10 in 1958 or something but you know for the most part unless they were little kids at the time people aren't going to have the 50s as a touchstone but when back to the future came out you would have people who would be you know like in their 30s who totally remembered the 50s and that that aspect of like proximity where we can look at the film and see the sort of portrait of the 80s and have some kind of cultural closeness to that they could have the same thing with the 50s so looking at how it uh handles that kind of level of nostalgia and the passage of time is fun and just the film itself uh is such a clever conceit and so well executed and uh, it edges on the the border of being in bad taste because the stuff with like him and his mom and the, the one thing i can never quite wrap my head around with it is when he's talking about like oh, I'm going to be in the car, and, and George, you'll come up and, and rescue her, you know, talking to his father, um, who, of course, doesn't know he's his father, saying, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, she'll be upset because I'll be trying to take advantage. It's like, well, wait, was he really going to try to, like, do something with his mom? To, like, that 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 part gets a little weird, I think. Uh, I, I, I My head canon is that he was, he just wanted the father to think that, and he was just going to sort of bite it out and say something awkward it's a great depiction of the kind of silent generation presence in american life from the time they were teens in the 50s to the time they were middle-aged in uh the 80s this kind of forgotten generation in a way their gen x children looking back at them i still got to rewatch back to the future part three I haven't seen that one in a while um I, by the way I, i'll link it below i did a, a little thread on like the silent generation and uh Biden and Bernie and how the presidency had just kind of gone from boomer to boomer to boomer and the silence had been kind of put on the wayside and now they're somewhat back in the center seat. So I thought that was interesting. I'll, I'll link that below as well. And finally, here is a little segment I recorded long before the Back to the Future Part 2 episode talking about uh, my interest in this film when I stumbled across it on TV. This was sort of the genesis, I think, of eventually covering it as Twin Peaks Cinema. So it's on some of the same points, but just a little minute long uh, 
you know, uh, observation and uh, talks about some other things as well. I also watched part of Back to the Future Part 2. I've been thinking, like, I'd love to at some point just to sort of, uh, speaking of sort of nostalgic sweet spots, just kind of go on like a little binge of all these kind of 80s movies I grew up with, Back to the Future, Gremlins. Uh, although I don't think I saw the first Gremlins till I was, till like 2010 or something like that. But, you know, just all of these movies that were around and kind of part of that milieu. And, and Back to the Future Part 2 is a lot of fun because, uh, you know, it jumps, it goes to the future, it goes to the, an alternate version of the present, and it goes to the past, but layers that on top of a previous vision to the past. You know, if anybody who sees it sort of knows what I'm talking about. And now it's fun to watch it for, or interesting, I don't know, yeah, anything involving Trump isn't necessarily fun, but interesting to watch because Biff is blatantly based on Trump, like in the middle section when he takes over. It's sort of their spin on It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, maybe I should save this for a time when I actually do this uh, film as a film in focus. So yeah, maybe I'll stop talking about it, but I did watch a little of that, not the whole thing. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And uh, you can also send me any feedback you have on this or other episodes, and I'll be happy to share them, uh, whether it's previous long ago episodes or, or whatever. Now, the theme will continue here with another film that came out around the same time, about a year earlier, actually, although by the time it made it to the U.S., it was probably 1989. And uh, in this case, this is a film that is much more disturbing and dark, but also plays with the presentation of its story, twists back on itself in really fascinating ways. So that film is The Vanishing. It's a Dutch film that was remade a few years later with some interesting Twin Peaks connections there, uh, which I'll mention here because uh, I'm not sure I get into that in the podcast itself. Uh, if I do, apologies for the repetition. But uh, it was actually shot around the same area as Twin Peaks, that remake. I've never seen it. Um, it also stars Kiefer Sutherland, uh, who, of course, is in Firewalk with me. But uh, yeah, I've never seen that one. But the original that it's based off of is... Uh, really uh, compelling, great film. So here is a little taste of that before next week. Et si l'homme qui voulait savoir, c'était vous.